0: Your name's not Dan, you're not coming in.
1: Hello, this is Raw. My name is Tom Latcham. I'm your host. We started this uh, whole podcast because the 90s rave seemed seemed so poorly documented due to it happening underground and pre-internet and, of course, pre-camera phones. But today's guest was one of the few people who did huge amounts to document the decade of rave. As one of a handful of rave photographers in the 1990s, Eddie Otshire became the eyes of the era and he captured jungle and drum and bass from the inside. His new book, which is co-authored, is uh, called Who Say Reload? It's an oral history. of the records that define Jungle and drum and bass, straight from the artists, including Goldie, Hype, Ronnie Size, Andy C and many more and includes loads of Eddie's wicked photos is out now and it explores this and he joins us now for a natter and a bit of a reminisce. Hello, mate. How are you doing?
0: I'm um, very well, thank you, sir. Very well indeed, all Very well indeed, Tom. I mean, thank you for the invitation uh, okay. and, and the chance to discuss and talk about the new book, Who Say Reload, which is out on Velocity Press, well done. You've got the plug in the early doors. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh there's mm-hmm. going to be loads of
1: there's going to be loads of those mate. Don't you worry about it. Um so tell me, what was it like being right in the heart of the 90s rave scene but not as an artist or a promoter or like any of the other people that we've had previously on this podcast.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean as a punter it was it was a wonderful moment to go out and essentially lose your mind. I think yeah. certainly coming out of the 80s and the 90s I think clubbing had become quite it was quite straightforward in its own way. Um, I would have been sort of in 1990. I would have been 16 years old. Um, I think I made sh- attempts to get into clubs and didn't make it in because it wouldn't let you in uh, for whatever reasons. And um, the rave scene kind of meant that I skipped clubbing and traditional bars or places that essentially are pickup spots and went straight into the fields and the, and the squatted buildings and danced all night long in places where there were no bars and there was no alcohol. Uh, And as such, it was a much more beautiful human experience because you weren't sort of picking up the bodies off the floor kind of thing. People may have had bad trips, but your job, if someone has a bad trip is to put your arm around them, tell them everything's going to be okay. Give them a bottle of water and explain to them that, Hey, guess what? We can go to Ibiza this summer. And that's where we grew up. That's where we founded ourselves. Um, years later, I think I was ended up in some town. What's it called? Birmingham. And um, uh, there was a street in Birmingham where every Friday and Saturday night, people would be herded in to get drunk and and go to super pubs and drink and and basically fall out and get in a cab. And, and I, and I realised how grateful I was to have had a rave experience that wasn't based around drinking police cabs vomiting and ended up in a kebab shop at four in the morning but your experience as well not uh, not as a
1: punter but as a photographer must have been very different to everyone else because I suppose I don't know you, you've, you've got to stay sober at that point because otherwise you're not going to get the shot and, uh, and you're viewing it in a different way to uh, to both the artists and then the punters on the other side of the decks.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, yes. I'll, I'll go in there with the camera. And I think the first time I, I shot a rave was probably the laser drone, and I very quickly realised that you can't stay sober. You have to go into. You have to be in the same character as everyone else in the building, and that meant enjoying the the the, the toxic uh, ch- uh, chemicals <laughs> that were being made in Amsterdam at the time um, and shipped into England for our experimental use. Uh, and you had to then, and so, so from that sort of first instinct, I, I had a particular lens and a camera and I realized it was all wrong. You couldn't go in there with a journalistic camera or journalistic mind. So I had to get a. Uh, I bought a camera called a Canon EOS 10, uh, with a wide angle 28 mil to 19 to 20, 19 to 20 mil lens. So wide angle, fully auto uh, in a way that, because, you can't the human eye can't work in the dark that's just a fact. whereas a canon camera with an infrared focusing beam on it would do wonders in a rave because as you press the shutter on the camera, it sends out this beam this infrared beam that would sort of go out, and people thought it was like lasers or strobes or something, so it just meant I could shoot in the dark in a rave when everyone's off their face without them feeling paranoid that there's some kind of or a camera in here or someone's watching me while I smoke my crack you know no I'm not interested in what you're smoking I just simply want to put you and everyone else in context because this is the one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen all of us young beautiful different races dancing
1: and uh, you, on, you, you of course, operated pre-internet, pre-camera phone. Yeah. How, how did you then and how do you now view your role in that 90s rave scene?
0: I kind of feel like my role is, is, is like other photographers uh, in London, like Charlie Phillips, Neil Kenlock, uh, different, different photographers who would photograph their communities. Uh, Neil grew up in Brixton, so he photographed the Brixton community, during the riots, before the riots and all the activism that was in Brixton at the time. Um, Charlie Phillips grew up in Notting Hill, West London, and he documented the Shabins, the pubs, the culture of Notting Hill of that time. And I kind of felt like I'm in that league where I'm documenting my time, but my time isn't based around one particular village or one particular part of London. It's a culture. It's a way of life. It's the rave. Um, I... I missed out on the first the sort of post 88 and pre 92 Raven experience where you'd have to sort of go to Burger King on Tottenham Court Road um, and get on a coach. I missed all that. And the magic of all those things, the magic of just trying to go out and dance without the law being on your case was one of the most romantic things I ever, ever, ever imagined. And I Wished I was there, but I also. But when I when it did finally made, emerge in the cities of urban London, like you know different clubs and so on, or different urban spaces, then I knew I had to sort of document this because even as a even though I didn't go to the raves, I had mates who were DJs who would be mixing up their hip hop with their ragga and all the other bleeps and hardcore, and you just you just felt like everyone was so as a young people, everyone was so cool. Like there was no issues. There were no problems. There was no alcohol, you know, you know, it's a different sort of way of socializing, which was kind of intriguing for me. because like, once you started going to the workplace and on a Friday night, everyone go out and have babies and, and pints. I'd been so cultured and and everything else. I was like, right. I, I want to go out and dance. I don't mm-hmm. want to be in a pub gassing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to drink. I want to dance. I want to rave. I want to, Dabble in chemicals that are now used for psychotherapy. 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 Don't say the word. (laughs) We know what you mean. We know what you mean. (laughs)
1: Psychotherapeutic.
0: Psychotherapy. Yeah, exactly psychotherapeutic well, we yeah. got there
1: together eventually We
0: did, didn't we? we? did, didn't
1: we? And, and the journey isn't important the destination is what matters um yeah. in terms of the book who say reload of course on velocity press there we go do it again um you. you provided the photography what is yes. the story uh, what story does your photography in the book tell in your view
0: uh, i mean the story is it's really giving you <clears throat> the story the stories are really um you know in one sense Paul has sort of, like, coaxed the, the the histories on the moments of making key tunes, key tunes that we would all know. But I was also, quickly after hearing the tune and buying the tune, I would then find the artist and, and photograph them and almost get into their heads to understand where they were coming from. And it just reinforced the fact that we all came from the same sort of mindset, really. There was this consciousness that emerged at the time. So my stories are to simply portray and contextualize these individuals and their creativity. Um, And there's two characters in the, in the book that I couldn't, uh, I never photographed at the time, which was shut up and dance and nookie. But because they're still to this day, making great music and still doing great things. I didn't feel like I'd missed out on capturing them at their peak or within the midst of their creativity. In fact, nookie's new album is as good as his best album. And that's gonna drop anytime soon, I think, on the Metalheads label. I'm not sure, but it just reminded me how the, the 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 spirit to create and those that desire has to be recorded and celebrated because so many of us were just talked out of it from the from our from our sort of you know going into school and and saying, Sir, 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 when I grow up, I wanna become a world-renowned producer and be number one on top of the pops. So and then we just get laughed out of the room. You know, but you deserved it. But they all did it, and they all proved themselves. And for me, for shut up and dance, it was a pilgrimage because I do remember vividly watching Top of the Pops and seeing them perform. I'm raving, I'm raving, and thinking, we, we, "We've made it. We're here now. We're, we're like it's, it's, it's here. Like we're, we're with the nation listening to what we're saying, and everyone's raving." Mm. Uh, obviously, it got shut down a week later and, and was discontinued, and they were sued for every penny they had. But um, still, a great record. I had to bite on seven inch recently. it's just a beautiful, beautiful tune.
1: Uh, the 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 vibe i get from from your book and, and your photography in the book is that uh, it's all about living for the weekend isn't it you know yeah. and it's and it's starting with getting your dubs cut on a friday ahead of the all the weekend you know the weekend going out raving all weekend and yeah. and on a friday it would be about you know the, the music has the cutting house the, the 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 social center of jungle
0: yeah yeah that's very much the case i mean i i i i would go down there and cut my own dubs and leon Rest in peace. God bless his soul. Uh, would, would always be quite, you know. He never judgmental about what the tunes were. But I think if you were lucky enough to get to know him and he get to, he came to respect your sound, he would very much champion you. You'd say, "Look, I think Groove Rider should cut this," and it, that would then stay in the studio. So when Groove Rider came in to cut his plates, it would be played to him, and he'd be like, "Okay, yeah, that that could work. That could work this Saturday." Uh, and, you know, many of the shots you'll see or a few of the shots, certainly the Groove Rider rewind shot that I have because the cover of the book has Goldie in the metal heads sticking his hand out, losing his mind because Groove Rider just dropped the tune. In the second shot after that, you'll see uh, it's a dub plate that was probably cut two days earlier on the Friday at Music House, probably test tested out at some rave on Saturday just to be sort of like... To find itself being heard for the third time on the Sunday, and um, that culture really was 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 a was a was, a, was so it's like a boiling pot, you know. It was constantly constantly sort of like boiling up new tunes, and on the Sunday, especially in the metalheads, it would be filled with producers and artists as well as ravers and dancers, and they themselves would then go home that night because you'd be back home by midnight. And just make another tune in the hope that you'd make it onto the Friday run and continue that cycle of creativity. Amazing. So uh, most of our audience won't have a clue what it was like
1: in, in there uh, when they're, you know, the dub Fridays. So can you paint us a picture of what, was, what it was like, you know, just on, on a typical Friday in there?
0: Uh, you try and get to music house as early as you can because if you got there because it was a it was a first come first serve basis there was no appointment system so you would basically walk down to this alleyway off north of Holloway Road uh walk into a room like a waiting room almost like purgatory a bit like hell and then you'd sort of count how many heads are there and then you might ask who's next and how many people are going and you'd be like there were four or five people and you know <clears throat> it takes around 20 to 30 minutes to sort of cut a dub depending on how much work Leon needed to do to the track. And so you sit and wait and wait and wait. And then maybe if you're really unlucky, Josh Shukka walks in. And if that happens, he's going to be cutting plates for the next 12 hours. So then suddenly your well, one hour wait time is now gone to 13 hours. So you just wait. And then you wait, and then maybe Groove Rider will walk in, and then you're like, right, so then you get pushed back behind the queue because you're nobody and Groove Rider's just walked in. So there was always a pecking order. But you always, your ear was always there to hear what was being cut because it was always cut at loud volume. There was no sort of sound insulation. I think there was a toilet, but it was literally a shed with a with a cistern and some... Anyway, um, fortunately, you could smoke outside in the in the, um, in the alleyway. But by the, by the time you reach like four o'clock, you, you, your weed had run out. You, you may have to switch to bevvies, and you were uh, But you if,
1: if Groove riders turn up, then uh, think everything's yeah. okay, right? You're right, you're, like,
0: you're, like, you're hoping you can sort of like you know, you know, what, you know, wait, can I cut you an extra plate? Or you know, don't forget each plate costs thirty five pounds to cut. So on a Saturday night. You know, you'd have 70 quid on you between you and your mate, and you'd have one side, he'd have another side. And then you'd, you know, you'd have to sort of swap the dub plates around and, and lend them out to your mates uh, because you want to get them played. You want your tune to be out there and played. And then maybe after four or five hours in Music House, you finally hear your tune and think, actually, it's not that good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just, I've just heard the most tearing drum and bass of all time around me. I mean, um, that's
1: that's that, that could be quite a
0: soul destroying experience. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. It's back to the drawing board again. You know, right, <laughs> right. I'll, I'll relegate this one.
1: And then, and then, your book sort of goes on to sort of you know feature. You've, you've done the Friday, you've got the dubs, then you're going out and you're dancing and you're partying the whole yeah. weekend long. It captures a lot of the joy of dancing and and also about the venues and that sort of stuff it, yeah. so it's, its sort of it, it tells a whole the whole story about the the week but focused around the weekend
0: yeah there's definitely that because that's when <clears throat> that's when the tunes would be finally sort of put to test and so many of the producers in the book would talk about the making of the tune and then the first time they heard it played out or the first time someone said oh your tune was played yesterday and it went off there was like five rewinds on it and you're like and and, and you're in that and you're in their emotional moment thinking God, that must have felt great. That must have felt great. Knowing that your tune, this random thing you made, you had no idea whether or not it was going to relate to people or not because it had the weirdest samples. And it does. People love it. Um, and those stories are really, really powerful because you, you get to realise how everyone kind of experienced the same thing in their own way, in their own environments, whether you're from Bristol and you're cutting Warhead and you're crust, or whether you're sort of like Croman Time who are from sort of North London, because we were so much more regional then. The villages that we came from, whether it was Brixton or Finsbury Park, kind of made us. The, the, the record shops and the culture of those areas would determine the kind of music that we'd have. So if you're from Wolverhampton or, you know, all the different sort of regions that were producing music were kind of reflecting their own cultures in a way, DJ from Leicester and so on. Well, Leicester, Milton Keynes, but their sound was almost like a reflection of Milton Keynes. Uh, I don't know what the sound of Milton Keynes is right now. I'll be very curious.
1: I best quite um, quiet. I mean, everywhere's quite quiet at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No one's saying anything or doing anything. Um, it, it, but venues as well, didn't they? They played such a crucial role in that in mm. that exploding jungle scene around about that time. Which ones stood out for you as both a raver and a photographer?
0: Not necessarily for the for, for, for positive reasons. Um, I mean, it's interesting because I had a great time at the Laser Drone, but I would probably be very young and used to the idea of a rave that looked like an adventure playground. You know, it was kind of dangerous in its own weird way because it was a former Quasar uh, place and Quasar was like laser tagging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was meant to look like a post-apocalyptic alien spaceship. And then they must have lost their license and suddenly it became a rave. But the police wouldn't give them any uh, alcohol licenses. So all you could buy was Ribenas, but it still kick off in there. And that was kind of interesting because when you read the book, many people talk about how dark and dangerous Laserdrome was. And it, it wasn't dark or dangerous to me. It was just very Peckham. It reflected the people of Peckham. No one would travel from anywhere to go to laserdrome And if you did, I think they sort of sensed that you weren't from Peckham and they sort of troubled you for it. Uh, But being a Brixton lad, you know, you know, Peckham's just a shithole really. Um, And whatever still is. (laughs) No, but the point is politics. And I think what's beautiful about the book is that it really explained the the politics of the venues, particularly because each venue had its own nuance, security, promoters, uh, some more lackadaisical about certain drugs than others, you know, and that sort of, Sort of tempered the mood of the space. You know, if you got it right, it was a great night. If you got it really wrong, it was a terrible night. And so, those venues kind of—it was beautiful to read the stories about <clears throat> the laser drums, the the A walls, the Ministry of Sounds, uh, the roller rink, the Roller Express. Because for me, also as a young lad, sort of having to go to a mate's house, who then have to borrow his mum's car without her permission, to then drive to these really weird parts of London for us, uh, just so we could dance all night long, was a really beautiful thing because they weren't your average spaces. They weren't the sort of experience you'd have now where, you know, security, coat checks, bars. It was a completely different – all those things happened, but they were very different. Uh, and obviously, we tried hard to get on the guest list so we didn't have to queue up like the plebs and da, 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 it goes on and on and on. But those venues really made us, those were our playgrounds. Th- that's the magic of what happens when young people dance after midnight, when they do their own world after midnight. This beautiful thing occurs.
1: Well, we hope you're enjoying today's episode of Raw. But now's where we ask you inevitably for your help to keep this project rolling on. We're a tight knit team of four working part time for free, taking no wages at this project to create this podcast. And it's quite a serious undertaking alongside our normal day jobs. Hopefully, you can see from our progression from audio to video in the few months since we started this podcast that, thanks to your ongoing donations, we've managed to improve our equipment. And I'm pleased to say, your generosity means this podcast now washes its own face in terms of costs, which is absolutely great. Great news and thank you, thank you, thank you so much to any of you who've donated. Uh, We've got big, big plans for the future but we aren't going to be able to do it without your support. So if you want us to keep making Raw, you're going to need to keep on funding Raw. And that will help with the cost of renting or buying recording kit and paying expenses to travel the country and interview more of your favourite rave artists from the 90s. So if you can spare anything at all, no matter how big or how small, you can do so at gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast. That URL again is gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast. And if you're not in a position to to donate because we know it's a tough time for everybody you can instead help by subscribing and sharing our content on youtube facebook instagram and twitter you just need to search for raw the 90s rave podcast go and do that now please massive love and respect to each and every one of you hope you're enjoying it you saw a lot of beautiful things but you will have also seen a lot of horrible things as well. Um, because it was, uh, it was, there were seven dodgy times. Were you ever n- nervous yourself or did your background mean that you were like hardened to that or, or it wasn't an issue for you? Cause I know a lot of people do speak about that.
0: Yeah, I think I was hardened to it. And also I kind of knew when to jump ship. You knew when, um, when, 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 cause it, there was a sort of turning point from happy hardcore to becoming dark core. You know, and to be fair, I hated Happy Hardcore. It was way too grinny and way too (laughs) amphetamine-based for my liking. So when it went dark and moody, and yes, there may have been the smell of crack in the air, and that's what I was told it was. I just assumed it was like the strawberry smoke machines uh, because I didn't know what crack smelled like. But that moodiness did change a lot, and the sense of camaraderie and, you know, in the traditional raves, all right, so... If someone steps on your trainers circa the early 1990s, that would probably be a death sentence. Whereas when you went to the raves, if you stepped on your trainers, it was like, no worries, mate, all love, get a hug. So I think what it was, was that we went from such a loving, all encompassing humanist environment to then darkness. Mm. And then that darkness forced a load of people out and only the sort of strong lads sort of survived years obviously by the time you got to the mid nineties or the late nineties, a lot of raves were so male dominated because it just became more testosterone filled, you know, and that, and the, and the people that had to leave were essentially women. We lost women from our clubs, which changes the mood of the experience that you're dancing in. Um, yeah. And I do, I did, I did complain about a sausage fest, but that was always my warning sign. If I went to a rave and there was like 60%, 70% blokes and 20, 30% women, and all alcohol and bad drugs, you know, it's going to be a terrible night. That must've been quite an interesting change
1: in the makeup and feel of the crowds and the scenes
0: and the raves to photograph. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was definitely intriguing, you know, sort of to go from beautiful women or young, young women sort of dressed up with like the 90s style outfits to geezers, um, was a bit strange, um, but it, it, for, as a photographer, I didn't judge it. I just had to sort of photograph it because I knew time would tell. And at the same time, I realised that what happened is the girls had migrated from the, the drum and bass rave scenes into the garage and house and garage scenes, which had emerged out of the, the sort of new underground that sort of came out. And you kind of had to sort of go with that and follow that, follow that lead and see that there's a continuum of... Something in our in our rave culture in England that travels in different forms of music, but that spirit is always the same. That feeling is always the same. And so it was really beautiful to see it go from happy hardcore jungle, disappear a little bit in DMB, and DMB became its own thing. And then house and garage emerged and brought that back into the fold. And then when house and garage sort of collapsed and went into commercial culture a new culture came out of that which was double step and grime so i ended up following the continuum of this creativity but not necessarily the the music the sound the bpm for instance uh,
1: the jungle scene exploded at a time as well when the government was criminalizing the rave scene and Mm -hmm. racist policing was pretty common um some people say it still is but very much so at the time it was quite clear Mm -hmm. did you try to capture that
0: um, no, cause I kind of, the raves that I would go to were the ones that were smart enough to sort of, uh, pay off the police. So they didn't turn up. But, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Cause and let's be honest, uh, the, the, the police, yes, they were racist, but you sort of find a series of things that come with that. Like wherever you find a racist, you always find a sexist. Always. The two are sort of interlinked. And with that, you always find corruption. And a lot of the time the police, it's never really said. Like, yeah, they were racist, but they were also quite corrupt. Like they they were just basically drug dealers. Mm-hmm. You know, they they kind of wanted to pull over kids, take their drugs off them, and sell them back on again. So and that's never really said enough because I think it's the criminal uh, criminal element in the police force that really has destroyed the or will destroy the police force. You have to sort of weed out the criminals. And and that's what we should call them. You know, <laughs> did,
1: you not, did you think did you not think that's changed in the last twenty-five years? It shifted.
0: I think it has changed. I think, yeah, it definitely has changed, but policing, but also ugh, they've kind of succeeded by legitimising, by making, you know, the, the licenses in London became a lot more relaxed. Um, it allowed for um, more sort of a, a lot of drum and bass, a lot of rave culture actually finally did break into legitimate clubs like fabric, like the end. So all the super clubs in London eventually adopted our sound and our culture. And as such, they themselves, uh, would, they would, it, it became more officialized. You know, there was more dialogue between the police and the the club owners and so on and so forth. And it became quite interesting for a while. You know, there's been standoffs between clubs like fabric and the police, uh, because for whatever reason, they, you know, they, they, they took umbrage with 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 these promoters, some pro and some and sometimes you have to sort of respect where places like the Ministry of Sound or the End, where they focused hard on making sure that the relationship that they had with the police was always more balanced in a way that would allow people to simply have a good time and feel safe, because that's the whole point. The police for, for whatever reasons are there to make people feel safe, not to feel threatened by them or by the society that wants to prey on young people dancing, you know. So, and and again, I think most of it's motivated by our sort of like kind of draconian drug laws. And that's what we need to sort of maybe deal with. But as I said about Birmingham, I feel like it's the breweries that are the real problem. They're the ones that seem to want to maintain their monopoly on the way we socialize, you know, without necessarily considering the effects of what alcohol does to people or to a group of people, because it doesn't make us happier.
1: Mm. Yeah, right.
0: it, 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 there's a, there's a sweet spot, and then there's a there's a cliff edge, <laughs>
1: you know. I mean, it's an, it's an incredibly damaging drug, as we as we know yeah. from you know in terms of not not only you know the violence and yeah. that follows it around, but also in terms of depression and alcoholism and all that sort of stuff. Absolutely. Um, uh, I know in the book you feature a lot about the Metalheads as a raving experience and their leader, Goldie, of course, is featured uh, heavily because for a couple of years you were their official photographer. What was that like, documenting such a major part of the Jungle and Drum and Bass movement? And did you feel like it was a major part of the Jungle and Drum and Bass movement at the time or is it only in retrospect?
0: No, I felt like it was special, really, really special. I'd been documenting raves up until the point of... Um, you know, different raves, thunder and joy, different promoters, laser drum and so on, just to get my head around how to photograph in the raves. And then when Goldie came along and asked me to sort of document this club and this vision that he had, I felt like, yes, this was a chance for me to be a true photographer, be a completist about this, go there every week with rolls of film and shoot and shoot and shoot and document everything, every last aspect of it. So it gave me a real project, you know, And as a photographer, we love projects. We love to sort of like go in down a rabbit hole and every week in, week out, experience the same thing over and over again just to get it on film just to sort of capture the, just to capture the experience. And that was a real honor for me. And at the time I was studying at London College of Printing, studying photography, eventually the metalheads' work that I'd done became my end of year exhibition of which, uh, the prints were then I gave the prints to salt Goldie, uh, as a thank you for allowing me to sort of come in every week and pay me to come in every week. And I would shoot on on the Sunday, process the film on the Monday and see him on Tuesday evening. And, share the work with him and watch him cry sometimes because there were such amazing moments that he would have missed if you know what I mean it's his club but there's so much he doesn't see so that was a really beautiful thing and to have him as a leader as well his passion his energy his his desire to see good and 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 to sort of capture creativity um the only thing that was difficult because I think at the time he was going out with Bjork and she would never want her picture taken she would just never want her picture taken I'll try and sneak up on her and get a picture nope it wasn't going to (laughs) happen so I think I missed out on that moment I think I missed out on David Bowie as well raving in there as well I don't know why everyone's like did you see Bowie I was like what what (laughs) <laughs> yeah. that's annoying yeah uh, well so goldie is
1: like quite clearly an, an interesting character and he yeah, and he does and he does stand out among the 90s rave scene as being one of those larger than life characters and I, I imagine that's probably partly why he's gone on to such great success in other fields since including strictly come dancing of course um Who, who else stood out for you as a photographer
0: I mean, they were all, they were all such great personalities, you know, whether it's sort of like the working class hero of DJ hype to the true artisan of, of Goldie. Cause he, we all knew, we all knew Goldie before the scene was even there. Cause he came from graffiti. He was already embedded in underground's cultures and there's seminal things he did. That's why we spoke about Terminator in there, the track that he made, because it was a seminal change in the sound as it were in the dark core era when he went from happy to dark. Um, then, uh, but I would say for all of them, whether it's the Bristol crowd, the crust, Ronnie Size, just because they all had visions. You know, these people were visionary people. They saw something in the scene that they wanted to emulate from other cultures, whether it's dancehall sound system culture, or you know, jazz in, in the case of Ronnie Size to to your Dillinger's. Uh, and and the Lemon D's, who were like the children of sound men. So they understood sound in a very different way. Each and every one of them were like huge personalities, always drove huge cars, uh, always lived really well and dressed really well. You know, they they literally lived in the moment and you had to admire that, you know, because it was such an inspiration to see, you know, working class people making money through uh, making music, which then they'll have... In the boot of their car, which then you know, they'll drive around all the record shops, and they could sell thirty thousand records at the back of a car, which would be a nice earner you know if, if every record was like three forty nine maybe you made two pounds in every record two type you made sixty thousand wow yeah on on one good release you know that was the sort of lottery moment for all of us like we just wanted to make that one great record at least just so we could live for a year. And then maybe off the back of it, DJ, maybe off the back of it, mm. you know, have it, have a nice deal. Maybe off the back of it, hang out with some great people and make more tunes. You know, it's the, the sort of dream and the vision. But I think they, everyone stood out because I think fundamentally everyone who's a part of the scene couldn't be anything else. DJ hype can't be anything but DJ hype. <laughs> All the MCs can't be anything else. They can't, I mean, they can work in the post office, but, they'll still be making mixtapes while they're there. You know, it's just part of their wiring. So that was always a wonderful thing to see and be inspired by, but Goldie was very much a very different character because he is a lot more than just one thing. He's multifaceted. I think the last time I spoke to him, which was when we did the interview for the book, he mentioned that he might have two brains in his head. So, so cause some people, you know, you've got the left and right side of the brain and they, yeah. in theory, they coordinate to sort of run your whole body. But for some people, they don't coordinate. They're two different people in there um you, you only work that out by doing a test where you cover one eye and, and say what color is that and they cover the other eye and go what color is that if they're two different colors it's because the two different brains don't see the same thing
1: Interesting. um you've also um captured rappers uh such as biggie smalls the wu-tang clan which um, that must have been fantastic to, yeah. to go and yeah. work with those guys and that's just a name two acts how similar or
0: different were jungle artists to rappers They were very different. (laughs) They were very different. jungleists are not the same as rappers. There are crossovers. There's the same sort of shared values and the same cultural sort of like cues. But rappers are, they're, they're more like comic book characters. They are like, they're more like the comic book heroes, you know. They they stand up. They can wear a cape. They can save cats out of trees. You know, they can do anything, <clears throat> and they portray themselves as people who can do anything. Who have sort of like superhuman skills, you know, superhuman verbal skills. But I found that like the junglists were more like evil villains. They were more like the sort of quiet sort of henchmen in the back. Just yeah, I'll get mine one day. Um, and and they were more like because they spent too many times in the studio with those machines. And a lot of the time you see these drum and bass producers, you go to their studios and you see that they just basically stay up all night torturing machines, like pushing these machines to their nth degree. So it kind of felt like the difference between Dr. Doom and, you know, Superman. And, th- and most drum and bass people were more Doom, like all winter in the studio. All summer, maybe you come out in spring for the Winter Music Fest to go off to Miami, catch a tan, maybe hydroponics, blah. And then hopefully you, you try and make sure you got a summer hit. So you, you're playing all the raves over summer to then go back in the studio in winter to start the whole process again. So the drum and bass heads were very much a, a different kettle of fish, but that was kind of what was beautiful for me because I, I could hang out with rappers and engage with that exuberant personalities and try and catch that on film to then hang out with, drum and bass producers for like hours at a time, not saying a word because it's just the music and then asking them to step outside while I catch a shot or, you know, while they're sort of in the breaks, I'll then get the pictures or the portraits of them because I just wanted to contextualize who they were. And they may have gone, all right, I might need a press shot because I'm DJing next week in in, in Berlin or something. And I'm like, right, fine, fair trade. Let's do that. Um, but yeah, very different, very different personalities. Uh, I wonder if it's partly as well because
1: they're uh, American versus, versus British and Americans exactly. are a bit more showy, I suppose. Yeah. But also, rap, you know, rap is a is a show-offy thing and producing exactly. is a bit of a nerdy thing a lot of the time, exactly. isn't it?
0: Exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly.
1: Um, nobody um, is raving now, uh, clearly, and it's impacting on so many of us in so many different ways. Is this Absolutely. why you think we're all so captivated by books like yours, podcasts
0: like these? Yeah, I think so. I think now of all times we're starting to really value what dance is to our humanity, what 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 it does for us to basically move your body around and turn your brain off, like literally turn that brain off. I think many of the anxieties that everyone's suffering from, certainly in the last year, has come from overthinking and not having that time to sort of turn the brain off. And I'm uh, unfortunately, drugs and alcohol doesn't do it well. It does it really badly. It just suppresses. So you kind of have to do that through moving your body around. And once your body starts to do its thing, your brain goes, I'm going to chill now. Cause I don't need to do anything. You can just dance for an hour. And that kind of helps us feel better, become better. And I kind of wanted the books to drop now just to remind us that when we do get back out there, let's value what dancing is and let's really enjoy dancing all night long safely. You know, like the music's nice. The, the sound systems are great. The venues are clean. You know, we're not all sort of on top of each other. And I noticed it a few years ago when I started sort of raving with the youngers again, like I've got a 21 year old daughter. So I started getting out with them. And I realized that well, I'd go to these clubs with, where the young people playing their music and there was no space, they almost wanted to touch each other. They almost wanted to be in a mosh pit bouncing together. And it goes off even more now than it did when we were younger. Cause yeah, we had fog horns and things, but we kind of wanted our own space. Now no one wants space because we're so this we're so sort of split apart we're so atomized we're no longer a sort of compound group of people that once we do get together all we want to do is just be in that warmth and the and pogo in with other people all strangers and everything but just to feel bodies around you like in a beautiful safe way and then you can go to chill out room and pass out when you're ready you know like you've lived you can wake up next day knowing that oh i've shaken those bones and um I mean, now I still rave. I kind of, because of my age and everything else, I found myself going to more gay clubs lately. Like in the last three years, I go to Horse Meat Disco a lot, to be honest with you, and Body and Soul in New York. Because um, the spirit of the music is still there, but at least even there, there's more space. You can sort of find a corner, hear your music, have a sip of your, your whiskey and be nice because I'm mm. at that age. Mm. Um, you know, I'd, I'd like my rum on the rocks, please. No Coke, thank you. I don't need well, the fire. I mean,
1: I yeah. think that they, if, if people don't like spacing, they're going to not like the next few years, I've got to say. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> I, I,
1: I'm interested in how you view Jungle and Drum and Bass and how it's changed musically uh, and atmospherically. Uh, yeah. in, in terms of the, the clubbing experience, from from then to
0: now, and whether it's better or worse, I I, I I don't know if it's better or worse, but it's certainly different, and certainly different in this country. What I what I think is the best thing that we've done is that we've exported our rave culture abroad. So although we don't have the raves that we had like like we did in the nineties, uh, when you go abroad. It feels like the 90s because they're sort of playing catch up with some of the things that we did or discovering that a great sound system in a warehouse without a toilet or whatever, without alcohol is actually a good night out. It's a great night out. So so we've had a bit of that. But I, I would say it's no, neither better nor worse. I just think it just it a the, the experience changes to suit different legalities and different places that you're in. That's fine. The spirit doesn't change. You find the spirit of the music in different musics. You just have to sort of make time for it. Um, and, as I said, if you want to go back in time to that nineties experience, you may have to travel abroad. You may have to go to a more slightly naive country. Um, I,
1: I actually do think that there is an equivalence, and I, to be honest, it's anyone who's watched this knows that I wasn't <laughs> raving in the nineties. So actually, okay. well, what yeah. you could you could say, what do I know? But um, from what I hear and what I feel and what I, you know, from what people tell me, <laughs> I wonder whether there is actually something around the, the techno scene now, and obviously the non-raving. But 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 prior to yeah. lockdown, I was finding that yeah. there was. A, a, a real, a, there's a real, there's like a dark energy to the and It could yeah. be Sunday yeah. night, uh, yeah. like <laughs> seven o'clock, eight o'clock, yeah, and right. everyone's that's just right. like heads down, techno yeah. music. And I yeah. wonder, given what you've just said, is yeah. because all the people out on a Sunday night, they seem to be foreign. yeah you're in these clubs in london and everyone's from italy or from whatever, whatever, and and, and there's that spirit and i I wonder if that's something maybe that britain or british people have perhaps lost a little bit i don't have no idea why and it's literally just something that's come to me with you saying that
0: yeah yeah i mean the thing is that the the, the strange thing is it's a bit like football hooliganism we're not the same football hooligans we were in the 80s but the russians still Mm. look to us and go oh my god you guys set the standard and it's the same thing with, with, with you see all the side trance stuff. You see all these sort of like, yeah, definitely Italian crusties coming out and raving hard, hard daytime ravers, hard ravers. And you're like, wow. And and you speak to them and they're like, yeah, I came here because of rave. I came here because of what you guys did. And I'm like, that's really cool, but we don't really do it anymore. But I'm glad you found it and good luck to you. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, it's nothing like having a trust fund to dance all day long in, 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 in the noughties. But you're right, there is an equivalence. And I think... That's the thing I think I'd like everyone to experience. But that said, that said, talking to someone recently, uh, when I went to Andy C recently, or last year, two years ago, did an event at Wembley Arena, the first Mm. time Wembley Arena went Mm. all night. And she spoke about how it brought her back to drum and bass, how the spirit of the rave came back to her. And that's like a wonderful thing because Andy C is the few acts that Wembley would go, yeah, okay, you're good. Mm. You know, but that takes twenty five years of being Andy C, being the best DJ. My biggest question about that is, when mm-hmm. did he go for a piss? Ah, oh, yeah, that's a very good point. Um, <laughs> did, he just put point. On,
1: did he just put on like one of those really sort of um, really long crust tunes that go on for like 16 yeah. minutes? And he's like, in fact, exactly.
0: while I'm here, I'll do a shit as well. You know, yeah, exactly. Out <laughs> yeah, my system. Um, I mean, yeah, Andy's seeing his three deck mixing. It's kind of like, yeah, he he has the he has he has the capacity to at least, um, yeah, exactly, play the create the fifteen long mix. You know, have three tunes (laughs) playing back to back with each drop working in sequence with the other it's like i mean genius level mixing you know as a dj you know like mm. the, you know the double drop and, and and all the little technical things that dmb seems to pride itself on and dc has perfected and uh, yeah including maybe the toilet break tune <laughs> <laughs> i wonder uh, how
1: many toilet break tunes you need in an eight hour set anyway yeah. we digress uh, before yeah. we wrap this up uh, finally if we could ask you um Why should people buy your fantastic new book, uh, Who
0: Say Reload, which is out now on Velocity Press? Um, I think it's one of those wonderful books that if you have on your coffee table, will, will, will sort of pique the interest of any individual that would otherwise be roaming through your home going, oh, I see you're, you're, you're a raver. Mm. And then, you so know. Present, presenteeism
1: is the reason yeah, you're saying to buy the book rather yeah. than actually, you know, being into it or it being an amazing book, just showing off. That's basically
0: yeah. what you're this, this is it. I mean, we're human. We like beautiful things. You know, let's just have a few pictures. Oh, let me turn it. Oh, look. And this is my uh, mate Johnny when he was, tw- when he still had hair. <laughs> Boom. Um, because, yeah, we did have hair. <laughs> we were like beautiful. And we still are, but you know what I mean. Mate, you've got loads of hair. What are you talking about, Oh, mate? This is lockdown. This is what lockdown <laughs> does for you. You grow a beard for the first you've got, time. No,
1: you Have got a fantastic, l- l- like a set of dreads on you that you've been playing um, with for the whole interview? You've got. What are you talking about? You've got loads of hair, mate. Yeah,
0: I was, I was, yeah. This covers the ball patch that's there. Ah, right. There but, we go. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 a, it's a wonderful. I mean, yeah. Who knew, right? Like looking <laughs> back, looking back on what your younger self did and being like, oh, well done, kid. You, oh man, I went were,
1: through. I went through Facebook yesterday, looking back about fifteen years. I was like, that was a bad idea what yeah. a depressing thing that was uh well listen uh, eddie up it's been fantastic to talk to you, you. your book uh, who say reload with your photography is out now on yeah. velocity press and
0: so people should go and get it it's wicked and thank you for joining us today oh thank you tom really appreciate your time and thank you raw and thank you to the rave community let's hopefully be out there dancing again
1: Well, that's it from another episode of Raw. We hope you've enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed making it. We're now an all-video platform, so if you're listening on audio, please do check out our YouTube page for this episode filmed, plus loads more besides. And you can also find us on Facebook, Insta, and Twitter. Just search for Raw, the 90s Rave podcast. Plus, if you can spare just a few quid to help us continue making more great 90s rave content and hopefully keeping a smile on your face at a difficult time, you can do so at gofundme.com forward slash the 90s. Ray podcast all donations will be plowed back into the podcast including expenses to get around the country interviewing some of your rave favorites uh, and also improving our equipment it's
0: about of fresh up. it's about of raw